great to be back here at Northwestern to be with you and to share for today and tomorrow. I want to begin with a story about a woman who came to meet with me, gosh, maybe 10 years ago now, time goes by. She had just read a really popular Christian book and, and she was kind of bothered by it and she wanted to process her thoughts with me. She started out this way. She said, look, I'm a middle-aged mom. I've got three kids, I think four kids actually. She had four kids by that point. She said, I have a house in the suburbs. I drive a minivan. My kids go to a private Christian school. And she said, I just read this book critiquing the way we as American Christians live our lives and practice our faith. And she said, I've become convinced that I cannot actually follow Jesus as a suburban mom with a mortgage and kids in a private Christian school. I said, really? She said, so here's my question. How radical does my life have to be to truly follow Jesus? She said, do I have to sell my house? Do I have to leave the suburbs? Do I have to move overseas? Do, what, what do I have to do, Pastor? Just tell me what I have to do to really follow Jesus, because I am now convinced it's not possible in the suburbs. Her question's an important one. How radical do I have to be to follow Jesus? Now, even though she was a middle-aged mom, it's a question I hear a lot from college students, the ones I have become friends with or mentored over the years as they reach that decision point about what am I going to do after college or what career path am I going to take or what's my real calling. It's, it's a lot of anxiety around am I living radically enough? Am I achieving enough? Am I doing what God wants me to do in the world? Will my life actually matter? I had one student come to me. He was a junior, pre-med major, and he said, I think I'm not supposed to go into medicine anymore. And I said, why, your grades stink? And he said, no, my grades are fine. I'd get to medical school if I wanted to. I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I, I think I might go into missions instead. I said, all right, why missions? And he said, does the world really need another cardiologist? I said, if I'm having a heart attack, yeah, the world needs another cardiologist. <laughs> but he's like, I really want my life to count for something. And medicine just doesn't seem that important, not when there's souls to win overseas as a missionary. He was asking the same question as that mom. How radical does my life have to be to really follow Jesus? So I've encountered this question in all kinds of different ways from different people in different stages of life. And it's one that I think, frankly, we get wrong a lot. And we make two errors in the way we answer the question, what is a radical life? And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The two popular ways that we talk about a radical life. One is the way that the culture talks about a radical life. The other is the way the church talks about a radical life. In my opinion, they're both wrong. And I want to take you to a story that you may be very familiar with from the Gospels that illustrates the errors we make around defining radical. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Luke chapter 15. This is a chapter where Jesus is telling a number of parables at a dinner party. The Pharisees are there, they're the religious leaders, and they're asking Jesus and his followers why he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and these lousy ne'er-do-wells. And Jesus responds with a series of stories, one about a lost sheep, another about a lost coin, and then in the middle of the chapter he talks about a lost son. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, 
this younger son of this father basically says to his dad, drop dead. I don't care about you. I don't care about our home. I don't care about my family. Just give me my share of the inheritance. Give me my money now so that I can go live the life I want to live. Bankroll my desires is basically what he's saying to his dad. For me, this younger son represents the way our culture tends to define a radical life. A radical life is a life spent in relentless pursuit of your dreams and desires. Everything and everyone is merely a means by which we satisfy our desires. This son did not want a relationship with his father. He didn't care about his father. What he wanted was his father's bankrolling of his desires. That's it. Give me what I need to achieve my dreams. This is the consumer American view of the world. I am the center of the universe. The entire purpose of life is to satisfy my dreams and desires. And everything and everyone exists to help me achieve those things. And if you are no longer helpful in the pursuit of my desires, I am justified in throwing you away. Now there's a very Christian variety of this as well. You might call it Christian consumerism. What Christian consumerism says is that God primarily exists to help you achieve your dreams and desires. There's been a lot of research to confirm that this is a popular view in a lot of American Christianity. Some years ago there was a, a researcher named Christian Smith. He was at the University of North Carolina. I think he's at Notre Dame now. Sociologist did an extensive study on the faith of American teenagers. The largest ever done. And what he concluded at the end of it is most American teenagers, including those who claim to be Christians, do not actually have anything resembling an orthodox Christian faith. Instead, he defined the faith of most American teenagers as what he calls MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's a mouthful, so let me unpack it for you. What Christian Smith said is that most American teenagers view God as a cosmic therapist or divine butler. Meaning, God's not actively involved in my life until I call upon him to help me solve a problem. That's Christian consumerism. God exists to help me solve my problems. God exists to help me achieve my dreams. God exists to help me get what I want out of the world. I have a friend who was a pastor in New Orleans. I won't try to replicate his accent. It's too unique. But he jokes that in America, we've made Jesus into the duct tape WD-40 combo pack. He's all you need to fix just about anything. We've made God into a tool, into something that we use to achieve our dreams. That's exactly what the younger son is doing here with his father. Doesn't care about his father, just wants the money to achieve his dreams. Now look what happens. Verse 14, he had spent everything and a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. All right, let's pause again. You probably have heard this story, Sunday school or in a Bible class somewhere. It's one of Jesus' best known stories. Almost every time I heard this story taught to me as a young person, it was presented to me as a story of repentance. 
about this idiot chotchball son who goes and wastes all of his money, hits rock bottom, comes to his senses, and goes home apologetic and repentant. Maybe. But the more I look at this story, the less I'm convinced that there's genuine repentance going on here. Because why does the son go home? Does he say, you know what, I really mistreated my father. I really want to be reconciled with him. I really want to make things right. No. He's sitting there in the slop of the pigs and he says to himself, servants in my father's household at least have a roof over their head and some food on their plate. So I'll go home and I'll apologize and maybe my dad will make me a servant in his household. Now, no doubt the son has been humbled. He's been broken by his own stupidity. But he goes home just looking for one more handout. One more thing from his father to help him live a more comfortable life. Now, he's not asking for another infusion of cash into his trust account. But still, is there real repentance going on here? You know, I think this is the way a lot of us tend to approach our faith. We don't give a rip about God. We care about what we can get from him. Help me improve my life. Help me improve my grades. Help me achieve that dream. Help me reach that goal. Help me get that boy or that girl. Help me pass that thing. Whatever our dream may be. We just use God as an instrument. And sometimes we get applauded for that. Because we're tenaciously focused on our dreams and our desires. As if they're the most important thing in the world. That's the culture's definition of a radical life. And what's kind of interesting in the story, and we'll come back to this in a minute, is despite the mixed motives for this son returning, notice how the father responds. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this cracks me up. The father never even acknowledges the younger son's apology. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, not to his son. He doesn't talk to his son at all. He turns to the servants and says, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate What's evident here is that whether the younger son's return home was genuine or selfish, whether his repentance was real or fabricated, was irrelevant to the father. Because he was so excited to have his son back home with him. Most of us come to God with less than pure motives. Seeking something other than God. We want something from him and at the beginning he doesn't care. There's not a single story in the Gospels of Jesus turning away somebody who comes to him in need. There's that wonderful story in Luke 4 where Jesus is at Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is sick and Jesus heals her. And then it says that they brought everybody in the town who was sick and Jesus healed all of them. Do you think they all deserve to be healed? Do you think some of them were facing struggles or problems in their life or with their bodies because of their own dumb decisions and yet Jesus didn't turn away anyone. He accepts us even in our mixed motives. We'll come back to that in a minute too. 
What I really want to focus on, though, is the older son. And his story picks up in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came near and drew to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, that's the older son, was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, all these years I've served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Pretty sure in the Greek it's in parentheses. It says, Are you kidding me? Really? This older son, I think, represents another way of defining the radical life. The older son says, I've always served you. I've done everything you've asked of me. I have been faithful and obedient. I have managed your household and your property. I've done it all. I'm the good son. Our culture defines a radical life as one spent in selfish pursuit of our own dreams and desires, that consumeristic definition of a radical life. And I think we can probably quickly dismiss that as not really congruent with Christian faith. But in response to that, the church ends up defining the radical life like this older son. If the culture says that everything's about you, and even God exists to serve you, the church comes along and says, no, 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 no. It's the other way around. God doesn't exist to serve you. You exist to serve God. Stop being so self-centered. Stop living in pursuit of your dreams and desires. Instead, what you need to do is get on mission for God. You need to start doing the things that God cares about in the world. You need to achieve his dreams and desires. You need to be active in pursuing his kingdom and making sure that you're pursuing the mission as he defines it. Now, in some churches, we talk about evangelism or winning the lost or planting churches. That may be how you define the radical Christian life. In other places, it can be social justice, reforming the systems of the world and their evils and prejudices. I don't really care if you define it through mission and evangelism or social justice and social activism. It all falls under the same umbrella. If the culture defines the radical life as consumerism or Christian consumerism, the church comes along and says, no, 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 no. The truly radical life is the one spent in Christian activism. Find out what God wants done in the world and achieve as much of that as you possibly can. That's what we see in this older son. He was an activist for his father. I've served you. I've done everything you've wanted. But notice his motivation. Where's my reward? Where's my party? You know, a party like this in the ancient world wasn't just a little household celebration. This was a big deal where everybody in the region is invited to the house for a big celebration. And whoever it is that's being honored that day is exalted and, and their status is raised among the whole community. And so what this older brother is asking is, hey, dad, when am I going to get my ego boosted here for everything I've done for you? Why are you celebrating this moron who lives with prostitutes when I've done everything the right way? Here's my point. 
the older son and the younger son actually wanted the same thing. They were just going about getting it in different ways. The younger son wanted his desires fulfilled and he was going directly for them selfishly. The older son also wanted his desires fulfilled, his ego satisfied. He was just going about it the more socially acceptable way. But they're no different. They just look very different on the outside. Now you might be thinking, I can't believe we have a chapel speaker who's telling us that the mission of God doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. Tim Keller, some of you may be familiar with him, pastor in New York City, he's written a lot of books, he's a brilliant guy. He's fond of saying that an idol is a good thing that we've made into an ultimate thing. I would argue that in a lot of the American church, we have made the mission of God into an idol. It is a very good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. Another way of putting it would be that I, I care about the mission of God too much to care about the mission of God too much. Some of you think that if you can change the world for Jesus, if you can change social systems, if you can plant churches, if you can win the lost, whatever your definition of activism may be, if you can just do that, then your life will be radical, then your life will count, then you will be significant. And it's a trap. Because the center of the Christian life is not the mission of God. Some years ago, I was um, mentoring a group of college students. I live in Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton College is there. So these are Wheaton College students. And we would meet regularly on Sunday nights. And these are students who, maybe like many of you, have they're kind of saturated with like Bible classes and they're on a campus where these things are, are valued. And so we were getting together not so much to study scripture as to process through some of their struggles of faith. And one night we got together and about 10 or 12 students and they said they wanted to talk about the issue of habitual sin, which sounded really entertaining. So I said, yeah, let's talk about that. That'd be good. And after a while facilitating the conversation, I kind of got a vibe for what was going on in the room. And I said to everyone, I said, Here, here's what I want to do. They're about, like I said, 10 to 12 around a conference table. I said, I want you to answer this question for me one at a time. In the midst of your sin, whatever it is, how does God view you? And the first young woman began to share. She was a missionary kid grew up in Asia. She talked about how decades earlier her parents had been students at Wheaton College when a revival had broken out on campus and in response to this revival her parents and many of their peers committed themselves to international missions. She said, I grew up with these remarkable parents in this wonderful Christian community. I saw God do remarkable things overseas. And she said, now I'm a student here. And how is God ever going to use me the way he used my parents if I'm still struggling with sin the way I am? The next student quoted scripture. He said, to whom much is given, much is expected. And God has given me so much and he expects more from me and he's disappointed that I'm still struggling with sin as I am and he can't use me the way he wants to. One after another after another, probably for 45 minutes to an hour these students shared and they all expressed the same thing. Some through tears. God's disappointed with me. God's frustrated with me. God can't use me. 
How am I going to achieve things in the world for Christ? As I listen to this, and I'm kind of writing down notes, a couple more questions came to my head. So when it got back to me, I asked them, how many of you grew up in a home where your parents were Christians? They all raised their hand. I said, how many of you grew up at a church where the scriptures were taught and the gospel was preached? They all raised their hands. And my heart broke. After 18, 20, 22 years in the American church, not one of them gave the right answer. It didn't occur to one of them to say, in the midst of my sin, God loves me. They had been singing it since they were in diapers in the church nursery. Jesus loves me, this I know. But the real message that they had internalized from decades in the American church was not God loves me. It was God wants to use me. And even the absence or presence of sin in their life was all seen through the lens of am I useful or not to God? How much can I achieve for God? What can I do to make myself significant in the world's eyes, in my community's eyes, in God's eyes? It was all about Christian activism. That is the great danger of believing that life is all about serving God. Let me tell you something. If you think God needs you to achieve something in this world for him, your view of yourself is way too big. And your view of God is way, way too small. Any God who needs you is not a God who's worthy of your worship. And here's the even deeper danger in my mind. In Matthew chapter 7, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the day of judgment. For me, this is the most frightening passage in the Bible. Because Jesus says, on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty works? And he says, I will turn to them and say, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. And you got to dig into this text a little bit and understand what's going on here. These are people who come to Jesus calling him Lord, Lord. That repetition is important. It's, it's not just an acknowledgement of Jesus as an important human, but it's an acknowledgement of divinity. Lord, Lord. They believe that Jesus is God. These are people who prophesied in Jesus' name. That means they preached in Jesus' name. They're pastors, church leaders. They cast out demons. You can take that literally or figuratively. Let's agree on this. These are people who worked against evil in the world. And they did miracles. How is that possible? How can Jesus cast these people away on the day of judgment? Because there is a profound difference between, between spending your life serving Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. They are not the same thing. And yet in a culture... In a church culture that so emphasizes achievements for God, so emphasizes serving God, we can lose the fact that we might not know God. There is a difference. And for me, this, this passage of Scripture, the, the scariest passage of Scripture, the, the most frightening word in that most frightening passage, is the word many. Many will go into eternity convinced they belong to Jesus because they have spent their life serving him. And yet he'll say, I never knew you. 
I think what we're doing in a lot of the American church today is we're taking younger sons, self-centered, consumeristic Christians, and all we're doing is making them into older sons, activistic Christians who now get their sense of significance and identity, not from their desires, but from how much they're doing for Jesus. We fall off the road on one side or the other. We define radical as self-serving or radical as mission-serving. And they both miss the point of the gospel. We have to keep reading in the story to understand what Jesus really cares about. The older son has given his argument to his father, I've always served you, where's my party? Why would you celebrate this idiot son who's spent your money on prostitutes? And then in verse 31, the father finally speaks and the whole story begins to make sense. He says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, first off, notice the father does not say a word about the older son's obedience. He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, you know, you've done a lot around here over the years. Thanks so much for all of your hard work. Doesn't say a word about it. Just as he didn't say a word about the younger son's disobedience. When the younger son came home, he wasn't like, yeah, you moron, thanks a lot, wasting half my money on all this wild living. He doesn't say any of that. Why? Because he says what he actually cares about. Son, you are always with me. You are always with me. In other words, Don't you care that all these years we've been together? Don't you care that we've had a relationship all these years? Don't you care that you and I are together? Here's the point. The reason why the father welcomes and celebrates and runs out and embraces that younger son and the reason why he doesn't acknowledge the older son's obedience is because what matters most to the father in this story is not the son's disobedience or the other son's obedience, but what matters most to the father is his son's presence. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of our Heavenly Father's heart in this story. What matters most to our Heavenly Father is not your sin. And what matters most is not your service. What matters most is your presence. This is why he sent Jesus to be the atonement for our sins, and reconcile us to him so that we might become the children of God once again. It's about relationship. It's about a life with God. Not a life for God. Not a life from God, but with God. In deep, abiding communion with him. This is what the gospel is all about. And it's what we lose sight of when we make mission first or we make desires first. It's about relationship first. I began by talking about the word radical. How radical a life should we be living? That mom who said, do I have to sell my minivan and my house and you know, move to Africa and become a missionary and dig wells and adopt orphans and translate the Bible? or What, you know, what do I have to do to live a radical life? Or that other student who is, you know, do I go into medicine or do I have to be a missionary? Like, what is a radical Christian life? The word radical comes from the Latin word radicalis. It means root or rooted. 
It's where you get the word radish from. It's a root. The truly radical Christian life is the life that is rooted in deep abiding communion with God. It's what John 15 is about where Jesus talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I will abide in you and through me you will bear much fruit. The radical Christian life is a life of prayer. And by prayer, I don't mean talking to God. By prayer, I mean deep abiding communion with God, even where no words are present. And it also means that the radical Christian life can be lived by anyone, anywhere, in any circumstance. If you believe you have to change your circumstances or your vocation or your relationships or your location, if you believe you have to change anything about your external life to experience the fullness of the Christian life, you are believing a lie. Because the fullness of the Christian life is not what you do. The fullness of the Christian life is who you are with. Are you abiding with God where you are? What I want you to remember more than anything else is that God does not need you. He wants you. He wants you. Do you want him? Before we are called to some thing, before we are called to some place, we are first and foremost called to someone. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for my sisters and brothers here, those who are struggling with sin or those who have built their identity on their achievements. Through the clarity of your word, I pray that you would help them see you more clearly, to understand your heart, your goodness, your love, your mercy. Lord, we are grateful that you accept us as we are, where we are, with all of our flawed motives and, and sinful inclinations, that you still embrace us and welcome us. But Lord, we ask that you would graciously transform us and give us a heart that would see you and desire you more and more and equip us to live in that constant communion with you, communion that will never end. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and abides with you and the Holy Spirit as one God now and forever. Amen. Go in God's peace.